From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. When you think of famous or infamous serial killers from the late 19th century into the early 20th century, usually the names Jack the Ripper or H.H. Holmes come to mind. But one of the lesser known and still unsolved series of serial killings happened in New Orleans between May of 1918 and October of 1919. Known as the Axeman of New Orleans, he or she seemed to target Italian grocers. And just as mysteriously as the killings began, they just as mysteriously stopped. Or so it seems. This week, I talked to author, researcher, and historian Miriam Davis, who is an expert on the history of the Axeman. Miriam is an expert in medieval history and archaeology and attended University of California, Santa Barbara, where she earned her PhD. She was a professor for 16 years and has been featured on the Travel Channel. She's also the author of several books, including The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story. Welcome to this week's episode, The Axeman of New Orleans, on From the Void. Okay. Well, Miriam Davis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking, I've been looking forward to this. Absolutely. This is a, this is a fascinating topic because I think it's probably a little bit lesser known, uh, you know, in terms of if you want to lump it into the serial killer category. I think a lot of mm-hmm. people are probably more familiar with, you know, like the Jack the Rippers, H.H. Holmes, uh, and, and folks like that. But this one's probably a little lesser known, but equally as um, interesting, I think, because it is also unsolved, and it's a very early uh, in our in our country's history uh, case, the Axeman murders. So, um, tell folks a little bit about your background. How did you get interested in this topic? Okay, it's it's a it's a little bit of a story. Uh, my my brother got me interested. He uh, had shown up at my house for a visit with a copy of. What's the the guy who established the FBI serial uh, profiler bureau? John John Douglas, yeah. John Douglas showed it with John Douglas's book, and we just got to talking about serial killers. And he told me about a serial killer he read about when he was like in the seventh grade in a crime anthology of a serial killer in New Orleans. Uh, he actually remembered it as somebody who went around whacking Jewish bakers, but turns out it was it was Italian grocers. Well, I you know how it is when you just want to procrastinate, you don't want to do what you need to do, and you want to do something else. So I started like googling this, and basically I discovered that the version of the Axeman story about these attacks on Italian grocers was most of what you found on the internet and crime anthologies was a rehash of what a New Orleans writer had published in the 1950s. Um, Robert Talent had published a book called Ready to Hang with a chapter on the Axeman called The Axeman War Wings. And it was this version of the Axeman story. And actually, there was another one that I uncovered that nobody seemed to know about. But this was the one that kind of you found in crime anthologies. But some crime writers had raised certain questions. Um, Robert Talent talks about the series of attacks mostly, but not entirely, on Italian grocers from 1918 to 1919. And the question was, were they all by the same person? And there were rumors of a previous set of attacks on Italians in 1911. And Talent actually had the names. Uh, it was a Chambra and Cruti, and I can't remember the third one. But he said, you know, According to the police in 1918, there were these previous attacks. Well, I read a, a crime writer who said, well, in fact, he had had somebody contact him and say that according to the uh, records in New Orleans, nobody by that name 
had been killed by an axe or anywhere else, anyhow else, in New Orleans in, in the year 1911, which was which was the year that was given. At the time, my husband and I went to New Orleans once or twice a year, and it just so happens that the records, the uh, coroner's reports, the homicide reports, all the police records are kept in the public library, which is across Canal Street from the quarter in the business district. So one Saturday afternoon, I popped over and had a look at the archives. And in a couple of hours, I found that there was no Italian by the name of Shambara Cruti or Rosetto who had been killed in 1911, but there was an Italian named Joe Davy, an Italian grocer, who had been killed in an attack remarkably like the attacks of 1918, 1919. But nobody had published anything about this. Uh, the name Joe Davy had never popped up in Talent's work or anybody else's work. So I thought that's the point at which I thought, you know, um, there's a book to be written here. This hasn't been properly researched. And I used Talent as kind of my paradigm. I was testing Talent's version. Uh, I was looking at the the attacks that Talent listed, and I was um, trying to interrogate them and, and find out were they really all by the same attacker? Were there any attacks in in 1911? And it turned out there were, in fact, the earlier attacks in 1910 and 1911. So I used Talent. I I of criticized Talent, but I'm actually he's very useful because he is this kind of um, paradigm that I use, and and I show I think that he was right in certain ways. And I show that he was wrong in certain ways. And one of the ways they argue, he, he suggests as the most likely Axeman suspect, an Italian criminal, sort of petty criminal named um, Joseph Mumphrey. And he talks about how Mumphrey was murdered by the wife of the last Axeman victim in Los Angeles in like 1920, 1921. And he says, according to Talent, she said when she shot this guy in the street in, in Los Angeles, she said he murdered my husband. And people interpreted this to mean she identified him as the Axeman. Well, it turns out there's some truth to that, but there's, but he, she was saying he murdered my most recent husband. The, the, the last alleged Axeman victim was a, a guy named um, Mike Pepitone in 1919. And if you look at the original newspaper reports, it's pretty clear he's not an Axeman victim. He's an Italian grocer, but he did have ties to sort of the underworld. He was not attacked with an axe. There were two men involved. And it was clear the police at the time didn't actually think this was uh, an Axeman killing. Joseph Mumphrey may or may not have been involved with that. But Joseph Mumphrey um, was run out of New Orleans. He shows up in Los Angeles. He, mar he, he is friends with a man named um, Albino, Angelo Albino, who marries this woman, Esther, who was Mike Pepitone's widow. Albano disappears. And Esther testifies that Joseph Mumphrey shows up at her house and says, if you don't give me money, I'll do to you what I did to your husband, meaning not Pepitone, but Albano. So she empties two revolvers into him, pleads self-defense, and is acquitted by a Los Angeles jury. So, And I was able to show that Joseph Mumphrey was in Angola prison farm during some of the Axeman attacks. Wow. So he could not. I mean, one of the things I was I was able, I think, to definitively show is that Joseph Mumphrey, who is the person that, you know, if there is an Axeman um, suspect, it's Mumphrey. He couldn't possibly have done it. Um, so but otherwise, what I do is I go these series of attacks that began in 1910 and 1911 and then picked up again. And actually in 1917, not in 1918, but 1917, 1918, 1919 in New Orleans. And I go through and I talk about which one were really, I think, legitimately Axeman attacks and which were not. And I was able to find that the Axeman actually continued killing in Louisiana, not in New Orleans, but in Louisiana in 1920 and 1921. So I'm kind of able to expand on what talent had to say and sort of sort out 
um, what is fact and what is fiction from his version of it. Wow, that's in, that's incredible. It's it's interesting to know that uh, it, it seems like so little new research had been done for so long that you were able mm -hmm. to uncover all of these details that kind of paint a slightly different picture. Yeah, well, like I said, I think that what most people did was simply um, retell Talent's version. And while I was working on the book, there were a couple people who did publish not full-length books, but um, in, in like chapters of books about the X-Men. It was a good summary, but I was still able to show certain things that I, you know, I was still able, I think, since it was a full-length book, to go a little bit deeper. And and I think to make a persuasive argument about which of these attacks were really X-Men attacks, and I think he attacked only Italian grocers, specifically grocers. He attacked from one to three in the morning, he was going after the man if, if sometimes the wife got hit, but it generally was kind of an afterthought. Uh, I don't think she was the main focus. I think this was somebody who had an animus towards uh, Italian grocers specifically. And at the time, Italians, mostly Sicilians in New Orleans, are taking over the corner grocery business. I mean, at this time, remember, there's no, there are no refrigerators. You have ice boxes. There's a little grocery store on just about every street corner. And so this is a real niche. And the Italians are in the process of taking it over. And so I don't think it is, you know, beyond the realms of possibility that somebody, for one reason or another, and we do know that the, the attacker was a white man. He wasn't an Italian. Um that this person, for whatever reason, uh, had an animus towards Italian grocers. That the women, the Pepitone case, I think I'm able to show, wasn't actually an axe attack at all. The women who were attacked, in one case, it wasn't an axe attack at all. She was hit with a lamp. In another case, it's not really at all clear this woman was severely hurt at all. I mean, they're, they're just, when you go back and you read the original police reports and the homicide records and the original newspaper accounts and you have to remember that in new orleans in the earlier part of the 20th century there are three or four newspapers who are publishing accounts of crimes in much greater detail than would ever be done today so um you know when you sifted through the original source material i think i was able to come to a clearer understanding than talent was because i think talent was a good reporter but I think he was relying to some extent on oral history of people who remembered the attacks rather than information written at the time about the attacks. And I think that makes a difference. Absolutely. And it seems like, you know, from, from a historical standpoint, you know, my background is in history and uh, mm -hmm. learning, learning to, uh, to view things from a historian's perspective, you know, first, you know, for, uh, and, original resources, you know, are always so much better than looking at secondary resources. You know, you want to, you want to, you know, you want to get the information that's uh, straight from the mouths of the people that were there. If you can, you know, especially at the time. Right. You, and also you don't, if you can avoid it, you don't want to have to depend on people's memories because I actually wrote a biography of a woman. Um, and I relied not only on sources from the time, which is like 50 years before, I wrote it, but also people who had known her. And I realized very quickly that sources written at the time were much more reliable. And so when it came to the Axeman, I think the fact that I went back to the original newspaper reports made a big difference. And I'm, I'm just not sure talent had access to them the way you do now. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. It, it is interesting to go back and you read some of these old newspaper clippings and they they put everything in there in great gory detail. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa. <laughs> and sometimes you have to wonder if their imagination didn't get they didn't get carried away with their imagination. Um, and you sort of have to sort out what, you know, you think might be kind of filling in the blanks right. but when when the, when the when all the newspapers agree on certain details you know i had a fair amount of confidence in them particularly when they agreed with the police accounts absolutely in the in the police records yeah yeah so and well, oh go go ahead yeah well 
What people may not realize is that there were indeed, the most famous attacks began in 1918 with the Maggio attack, which was a really grisly murder, culminated in the Cortamiglia attack in 1919, where you have actually um, a, a young man and his father tried for one of the murders. But the, the attacks, I believe, began in 1910 and 1911 with somebody who was attacking Italian grocers in the middle of the night with a, with a cleaver, a meat cleaver rather than an axe. But I talked to a profiler, a professional profiler, and I said, could this possibly be two different people who attacked the same demographic with a similar weapon? He said it would be extremely unlikely. It would be extremely unlikely. It's the same demographic, same time of night, um, similar, you know, he switched from a cleaver to an axe, I think, because he realized he kept having to steal meat cleavers and then abandoning them at the scene. Because even in New Orleans, walking around with a bloody meat cleaver at three in the morning is going to get you some attention. <laughs> but that increased his risk factor, having to steal them, which he would steal them from butcher stalls. But with axes, he would have known that everybody at the time had an axe in their backyard because everybody used wood-burning stoves. So he could use the axe that belonged to his victim, abandon it there, and not have to worry about it. And so that's why I think he switched um, weapons. And there is this big gap between 1911 and 19, the end of 1917 when the attacks start up again. And my suspicion is that he... He might have been in prison for a burglary. The police believed in 1910, 1911, that those attacks were by somebody who had some experience in burglary. And it would be very easy for him to have been arrested for burglary and, and be put in jail for a few years before he returns to New Orleans and he starts attacking again. So that's what I, I, I mean, or, or I could be wrong and he could have just been, you know, um, have disappeared from New Orleans for that period of six years. But I think that's a that's a likely possible explanation that explains that gap. But I talked to the profiler and just looking at the evidence, I think it's extremely likely that the attacker of 1910 and 1911, who was called the Cleaver, is the same person who began attacking in 1917 and was called the Axeman. And that's that's really interesting, too, because uh, in today's day and age, in 2021, we know so much more about the psychology behind serial killers now than we ever used to. And one of the things that we know in a lot of cases, you know, these serial killers, uh, while they're trying to figure out kind of their their modus operandi, they're, they're trying things out and they sort of mm -hmm. uh, they and a lot of times the earlier crimes are a little messier, a little clunkier as they kind of perfect it. And then they sort of escalate as time goes by so that. It seems to make sense, you know, that he would start out with meat cleaver, realize that it's not uh, not efficient, you know, and, and, and riskier and then kind of switch to this, this weapon that's already on hand. And you can see him accelerate in his first two attacks, which were like in the end of summer and fall of 1910. He doesn't kill anybody. He hits, uh, you know, again, it's two Italian grocers. The first one, he doesn't injure very badly, really, at all. The second couple, he attacks the couple viciously, but he doesn't kill them. It's not until the third attack in June of 1911 that he kills anybody. And so I think you can kind of see, um, you can see it accelerate. And, you know, he starts again in 1917. He doesn't kill his first attempted victim. But after that, he always kills somebody. I mean, there's always a fatality. Yeah, that's, that's really the other thing I found that was in, really interesting as well is that part of his kind of, uh, the, the, I don't know, kind of the, his pattern, the things that he did uh, on a regular basis, or the commonalities that you see between uh, these murders is that um, I believe I, I heard that he did it on moonless nights, which seems to me that, you know, less you know, more, more chance of cover. And then he also, they think got in through, through these kind of Victorian era doors as well. Right. Like, can you explain that a little bit too? Cause I was trying to figure out what that meant exactly. <laughs> well, he didn't always use the door. That is what he became famous for is prying off one of the door handles and he would reach his hand in to flip the lock, but they had, you know, these big panels 
on the doors that he could chisel off and, you know, create a hole in the door that actually, you know, they did this funny experiment. Some small people could actually go through the, through the hole, but we think, I think he just put his hand through the lock, through the, through the door and, and shot the bolt. He didn't actually always enter that way. I think he just entered the way that was most convenient. In some cases, he climbs through a kitchen window. Um, he, in one case, he climbed through a bedroom window. I, I don't think that had any special significance for him. I think it was just whatever was the easiest way for him to, to get in. And that just seemed in many cases to be, to be the, the simplest thing to do. Interesting. And so you, you talked about the fact that some of these earlier murders may be, may be the same individual, the same culprit. Uh, and he didn't, in fact, kill some of them. So I would presume that there is some sort of physical description that the police at least were operating based on. Uh, what, what, what were they saying this individual looked like? Um, yeah. The first attack, we have a woman who talked to him and got a pretty good look at him and could give a description of him. Um, ugh, and I'm trying to, it's a little cold in my mind, but I, he's the mid thirties. Um, American. I mean, he's white. He's not an Italian immigrant, uh, kind of husky voice. Um, I'm trying to think mid, mid height. I mean, not, not tall, but not short. And she actually, this woman, uh, Mrs. Crutey, when they arrest somebody, the police chief at the time thinks that the crime was so strange. That is, he hits this guy on the head, threatens the wife into giving him money, takes their pet bird out on his way out, puts on his shoes, very leisurely walks down the street and releases the bird. That is, he's acting in a very strange way for somebody who's just committed what is really at the time a hanging offense. And the police chief reckons that he's probably what they called a, a drug fiend, you know, somebody who was a morphine addict. Because at the time, it was pretty easy to get morphine. They arrest somebody, uh, a guy named Flannery, who's an experienced burglar and is a drug addict and has a history of assault. And they bring him to Mrs. Crutey and say, is this the guy that you saw? And she says, yeah, she identifies him. But then he's sitting in jail for the next two attacks. So he can't be the person who's doing it. And eventually, I think they, they probably put him into an asylum for the, ins for the you know, insane. Um, but that, you know, what they did was they identified somebody who sort of fit the profile of the kind of person the police chief thought they were really looking for, which, in, which was very reasonable. And the woman who'd actually gotten a look at, at the attacker looked at him and said, yeah, that's about right. And that just tells you how easily um, people can be wrong. I mean, she had no reason to lie about this, but I think she just got it wrong. She was told, here's a guy who kind of fits our profile. He probably looked roughly like uh, the attacker and she misidentified him. So I think this is more evidence. I think that eyewitness um, identifications have to be treated with some, with some care. Yeah. We, we still see that happen, uh, in modern crimes. Uh, so that, that is interesting. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, the, the kind of common bond or common theme between these crimes are that, you know, the Italian grocer, um, what, what are, I'm assuming police are operating off of the same suspicion. So what, you know, what, what were they doing? What was, what was the, um, kind of, I, I guess, police tactics at the time? Because obviously this is long before the advent of DNA, you know, technology and even fingerprinting and, and a lot of the modern things we kind of take for granted. So what were they, how were they operating? Uh, under what assumption uh, at this point? And did they have any good leads at that point or were they kind of just in the dark? Um, they were pretty much in the dark. And in fact, not all of the police, not all the detectives could even agree on what was going on. Some continued to say, look, these are just burglaries going wrong. Now, by, by 1918, the police chief, a guy named Mooney, does believe that it is, again, what they called a fiend, that it was somebody 
um, who was deliberately targeting, who who enjoyed, who did it for the thrill of, of, of killing people, not because he was trying to rob them. There was also what they call the Italian detective. This was the one Italian-speaking person on the police force, the son of an Italian immigrant. Um, he believed, he, he investigated uh, in the, the 1911 murder. He had retired by 1918, uh, but he gave an interview in which he thought that it was basically, you know, a themed, that this was somebody with a Jekyll and Hyde personality that it wasn't just robberies gone wrong and that this person was targeting Italian grocers. So you do have people who I think, you know, stumble onto the idea, even though they don't have the term of serial killer who kills for the thrill. But at the same time, you have other detectives who, who never really admit, you know, that it's anything other than they don't think it's the mafia. Now that's pretty clear. They don't really think it's the mafia, but a lot of them do kind of think, you know, these are just burglaries gone wrong. Interesting. Because the mafia piece part does come up, you know, uh, mm-hmm. potentially because, again, this is a heavily uh, Italian area at, at this point in time in the early 1900s. And there are records that show that the you know Italian mafia is, you know, is present at that point. La Cosa Nostra, I believe, is the uh, uh, the specific, you know, mafia family or mafia mm-hmm. group. Um but again, you know, going back to what you said earlier is if those early murders are the same individual, then obviously the physical description would would seem to indicate that it's it's not, you know, not the mafia, you know, because it's not an Italian man. Well, in New Orleans at this time, mostly the Italian crime you had were either vendettas between people who had offended each other and they they were the first generation. So they weren't used to the sort of going to the authorities. Or you had a type of crime called um, the black hand. And and this was kind of, I mean, you did have Italian thugs. I don't think you have as organized a mafia at this time as you have later as a result of Prohibition. Um, there are people who argue, you know, they're the beginning of, of organized crime. But I think most of the Italian, what's, what's called the Italian crime, is this black hand blackmailer where somebody gets a note and this is what joseph mumphrey was a blackmailer somebody gets a note saying if you don't pay us off we're going to blow up your grocery and that's what joseph mumphrey went to prison for for blowing up somebody's grocery so there was that kind of crime but they didn't attack people in the middle of the night with an axe and they certainly didn't attack women and there's no reason to think that the victims had any ties to the Italian mafia. Now, 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 Pepitone, who was the last person in New Orleans who Talent thought was an X-Men victim, he did have ties to, to vendettas and such. But again, I think that's, that's what killed him, not the X-Men. He wasn't hit with an axe. He was hit with a pipe. His wife saw two people there, not just one. I mean, when you, when you dig down the details of the crime... Uh, were very different, even though he was an Italian grocer and he was attacked in the middle of the night. I just don't think it's an axe man killing. That's the one I think you can attribute to something you might call mafia. Interesting. And it seems to me, too, that if these other murders were in some way related to the mafia, uh, and typically the mafia are operating under, you know, they're, they're you know, trying to extort somebody for money or financial yeah. gain it seems to me that there'd be some financial connection that was discovered after the fact you know mm-hmm. like i think you, you mentioned pepitone i think i read that shortly after his murder his brother takes over his his grocery store and then immediately sells it to this member of the mafia which you know obviously kind of lends you to, to the feeling that okay yeah this is probably a mafia hit i think that's actually chiambra Oh, right. Yes. Right. There was a a name that came up in nineteen in, in a talent's account of of a, a grocer named Chambra. Now there was a Chambra grocer. I can't remember his first name. What was it? Not Joseph, but his last name was Chambra. He was murdered with his wife in nineteen twelve, but it wasn't an axe murder. It was they were shot. And it was clear they were trying, the, the killer shot the husband 
and hit the wife accidentally and and, and she just died later of, of septicemia or something. He's the one that his grocery was then later sold to somebody who had real connections with what you could really call the mafia. So I think, again, that's an Italian killing that may well have been related to to organized crime, but had nothing to do with the Axeman. Right. Yeah. There's there's not that connection amongst the other murders. It doesn't seem that that lends you to believe that it's financially motivated in some way. And what's funny is, though, you have some writers who will include the Chambres in the Axeman murders, even though they're perfectly aware that they were shot and not killed with an axe. And they'll just say, well, the Axeman decided to use a revolver this time, which makes no sense to me. And I think, you know, I think that's the sort of drawback if you take talent's outline. You can't be afraid to question it. There's like one person that talent mentioned as being attacked, a uh, uh, an Italian grocer named uh, Steve Boca. And he gave real details about this attack. Steve Boca survived, but there were real details about his attack. I could find no evidence anywhere of any such attack or any such um, person in New Orleans named Steve Boca. So again, I think talent relied a lot on oral tradition, which can get garbled. And what's funny is that so many other writers... If they even if they can't find supporting evidence for Talent's version, don't want to don't want to abandon his version and say, well, maybe he was wrong about this. But I just think, you know, when something gets printed. And I know this from my students, students I used to teach, if it was in print, they wanted to believe that it was fact. (laughs) And I think even even historians and journalists sometimes fall prey to that that way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. If we've learned anything in, in the last, uh, <laughs> I don't know how many years now, just because it's in print doesn't necessarily mean it's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and just because it's in the internet doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's, but, uh, it's interesting how these older cases, though, because there are a lot of uh, similarities just in terms of of the legend that kind of uh, you know was created as as. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as the years went by, similar to like Jack the Ripper. And and there's a lot of other things that were sort of attributed to that particular killer that may not necessarily have been, you know, done by the killer. And so you, mm-hmm. you mentioned a couple of these different victims, most likely were not, you know, the same killed by the same person. There was also a letter that was attributed. Like, what what is your take on this on this letter? Was this was this really from the killer? Because it that's a very rare thing that does not happen very often. We see it with the Black Dolly killer we saw with the Zodiac. Jack the Ripper had some letters attributed to him, but like they've since kind of determined that probably not him. It was probably a journalist trying to, you know, up circulation a little. So what's, what's your take on this particular letter? Okay. So what you have to understand is there was this attack on the Cortamiglia family in March of 1919, in which the husband and wife were badly, badly injured, and their two-year-old child was killed. And it's about, oh, is it a week, a week or 10 days? But shortly after that murder, the Times-Picayune publishes this letter that purports to be from the Axeman. And he says that the next Tuesday night, he's going to be walking the streets of New Orleans and any house that uh, where jazz is playing, they'll be safe. Well, the trouble is, From the eyewitness identification we have, it's clear that the attacker was a white working class person from the way he was dressed. A working class person in that day and age would not have been well educated enough to write that letter. Whoever wrote that letter was extremely well educated. It it has sort of classical references. It's very well written. Um. I have a theory as to who did write. I, th- I think, look, it, to me, it has the tone of a fraternity prank. Mm. And in fact, most educated people in New Orleans at the time didn't actually take it seriously. So, some of the uh, immigrant communities did. I mean, they couldn't even read, probably couldn't even read the English, but they just heard the rumors. And they were, it was clear that some people were scared to death. But the newspaper editors and the, edu- I just, I don't, There's not a lot of evidence that that as a whole, the population of New Orleans took it seriously. 
there was a jazz music writer, lyricist named Joseph John Davila, who had who had made some money publishing these jazz songs, who shortly after came out with this song called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, or Don't Scare Me, Papa. And he made a fortune on it. And I was telling a homicide detective uh, who I was consulting about this and about the letter and all this. And he looks at me and he said, he done it. <laughs> he done it. Um, because as, as, he, as the detective pointed out to me, it's extremely unlikely that our Axeman was educated enough to write this kind of letter. And, you know, this, this letter was great advertising for this guy's song. Now, I mean, fortunately for me, you can't libel the dead. So even if I'm wrong, you know, I'm not in any trouble here. But that, if I had to identify, I'm, I, just, I just don't think really. I, our Axeman didn't do that. Not the real Axeman. Um, I mean, it's a great story. And, of course, that's the version that shows up with season three of American Horror. Yeah, yep. This jazz musician serial killer. I mean, look, it's great, but it's like many of the Jack the Ripper letters. I I just don't think it's it's legitimate. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely entertaining, but probably not probably not connected to the real killer. <laughs> well, and and again, I think people educated people at the time probably found it entertaining, but mm. there was a an editorial in one paper that the writer was really outraged that the Times-Picayune had published the letter because he says, look, there are uneducated, illiterate people in our city who were scared to death by this, superstitious people who, who believed this and were scared to death, and it was irresponsible to publish that letter. And so um, I, I think some people treated it as a joke, but the population that was really you know, the target of the Axeman attacks, I don't think they treated it like a joke. That's so interesting. So, yeah. So, uh, after all of this research, you know, do you think it was one person or do you think it was multiple people? And if it was one person, uh, who's your best suspect uh, in terms of all of the different people that you, you may have looked at? I think there was one person who was going about in 1910, 1911, 1917 to 1919, and then elsewhere in Louisiana to 1921. I do think there was one person targeting Italian grocers. And I can't tell you a name, but I think I have a profile of the kind of person it was. We had no from my eyewitness accounts. He was white and he was most probably working class. We know that at the time, the Sicilians are a rising class. That is, they, they came over in the late 19th, early 20th century, dirt poor. They worked in the cotton fields and in the cane fields. They saved every dime. And as soon as they could, they went to business for themselves. They're in the process of taking over this little niche of corner groceries. In 1900, they owned 7% of the grocery stores in New Orleans. By 1920, they owned 50%. And they are a rising class. And, and they don't quite fit in in the black-white dichotomy that is the American South at the time. They're not, they're not black, but they're, to some people's eyes, they're not quite white either. Um, they're often referred to as as just Italian, not white, not black, just Italian. It is possible that you have some white working class person who resents them for some reason for being successful. This could have been a person whose family lost out in the you know competition, the grocery competition, because they're in the process of taking over this niche. Um, I had a police officer suggest to me that possibly we, uh, the police at the time believed this person was an experienced burglar. Maybe this person served some time in jail because an Italian grocer testified against him. I mean, it's all speculation, but I think there's this clear pattern that a certain demographic was targeted. We have an idea I think a fairly good idea of the person who targeted him, targeted them. And we can speculate as to what, what his motives were. I mean, it might be that this person began as a burglar. And then for some reason, you know, he's, he's burglaring the grocery, the, the grocer 
gets startled. He wraps him on the head and discovers he likes that. He likes the blood. He likes the control that he comes to. Because it's clear the first attack seems to have been like a real burglary. And I wonder, and, and, and a, a police officer I talked to sort of, you know, also speculated that, you know, maybe he disturbed the guy in his sleep. He hit him and he discovered that that was the thing that he liked. Because from then on out, if, if, if anything is even stolen, it's pretty clear that that's secondary to the actual attack. Interesting. So, so in all this research, you've connected uh, p- potentially these, these earlier murders and obviously the, the established murders and then mm-hmm. these additional murders that happen uh, in uh, you know, Louisiana. So obviously we know now that serial killers typically don't, don't just suddenly hang it up and retire. You know, they either mm-hmm. they stop because either they're caught or they're dead. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, so you see this end to, to these murders that take place in, in Louisiana. Is it your kind of uh, suspicion that maybe he was finally arrested for something else, maybe was killed or did, do you think that maybe it's potential that he moved on to another area? Well, if you trace him from new Orleans to Alexandria, to Lake Charles and DeRitter, he's moving west. And I had this fantasy that I'm going to get this email from somebody out in Texas who said, I just found a clipping from our newspaper in, you know, 1929 that some guy, we caught some guy coming out of an Italian grocer's place with a dripping axe in, in the middle of the night, and we, he got hanged here. Because that'll be the axe man. So... He might have died. He would have been probably at least in his 40s and 50s by then. By you know, it wouldn't have been unusual for someone to die at that age at that time. You know, if he got cancer, it probably you know killed him. Um, he could have gone to jail for something else. He was a burglar after all. Uh, he could have moved on. He was moving west, so maybe he kept killing in Arkansas and Texas, and I just you know was not able uh, to trace him. Um, but. I mean, the chances are against it, mm-hmm. but I still have this dream that I'll find out west somewhere somebody who got caught in 1922 or 1923 doing the same thing. Uh, interesting. So, so do you think it'll ever be solved or is this going to be one of those mysteries that probably just kind of we don't know till we die kind of thing, you know? Well, you know, um, Robert Tallett didn't think at the time that we'd be able, he, anybody would ever be able to say any more about whether Joseph Mumphrey was really the ax man. And I think he was wrong about that because I have access to records that he didn't have. Um, I think that the chances are against it. I mean, you know, this is a closed case. Nobody, but people like me and, and true crime aficionados are interested but I don't think it is against the laws of physics impossible. Like I said, if you were to find a case in Arkansas or Texas in 1923, 1924, 1925, of somebody who was caught coming out of an Italian grocery at three in the morning, having attacked the grocer with an axe, that would be the axe man. And there's no necessary way to connect it to these attacks in Louisiana because I don't see very much evidence that even the DeRitter or the, or the um, uh, Lake Charles attacks were ever connected to the ones in, in New Orleans. You've got to remember at that time you had newspapers, but you didn't you didn't have a national newspaper. People didn't have a lot of access to what was happening in other parts of the country or even sometimes other parts of the state. So, um you could easily have had a similar uh, set of attacks in, in Texas and nobody in Louisiana would have heard about it. Yeah. And the, the other thing too, is that law enforcement was com- structured completely differently in those days. There was no FBI there, you know, there, there was no national database, you know, where mm-hmm. law enforcement agencies can share information. Um, and so even, you know, especially if he had moved around, it would have made mm-hmm. that connection that much more impossible. I would imagine. Yeah, and, and you have to remember, they only New Orleans only got fingerprinting in 1918. And even if they had a set of fingerprints from the scene, they had no database to run it against. They needed an actual suspect. 
Wow. And if they didn't have a good suspect, the the the, the fingerprints didn't do them any good. Yeah, that's that's a good point. <laughs> no one thinks uh-huh. about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no CSI back then. <laughs> well, there is kind of. There's a there's a <clears throat> the predecessor to what will become CSI. There used to be what were called Bertillion operators, because before fingerprints, the system that they had of identifying somebody was a lot of different measurements that this was based on the, uh, the theory that if you measured people's just about every measurement you could take of a person's body, that no two people would have exactly the same measurements. And you'd have these Bertillion operators who specialized in, in measuring people from all angles. And you had these cards with these detailed measurements. Well, these are the guys that not only took crime scene photographs, but also began to be the fingerprint experts. But it's very much in its infancy. And there were uh, photographs taken uh, of the X-Men crime scene. I don't know where they are. I mean, the New Orleans Police Department did not have much in the way of a historical archive. I think what they had, they, uh, they gave to the, uh, the New Orleans Public Library, to the city archives. And no photographs of the crime scenes uh, showed up there. I just, I did have some, you know, homicide reports. So I think at one time, probably more evidence existed than has survived. But for example, there are in the city archives in New Orleans, there are a lot of the, the, there are a lot of famous court cases that the oh what's I'm blanking out on the word the the account that, that gets written in that gets taken verbatim in the courtroom oh yes um I know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah it's they're the ones for all the famous cases are missing because at a, at one time any lawyer could go in and take them out and people would just seem to have stolen the famous ones oh my gosh and I got the case uh. The Cordomiglia murders, the Cordomiglia murder, where um, this this elderly Italian and his 17-year-old son were accused and convicted of one of the murders, the the, the, the daughter, the Cordomiglia daughter. I got the transcript of that trial only because it was appealed to the Louisiana State Supreme Court. So that's the one trial I do have the transcript of. And that's an interesting case in and of itself because the police chief in New Orleans was certain it was his axe man that was the killer. He didn't think that it was this elderly gentleman and his and his 17-year-old son. But the authorities in Gretna, which is this little town outside of, outside of New Orleans, they were just convinced that it was these next-door neighbors who were kind of competing grocers. And basically railroaded them, um, put the star witness into jail until she agreed to sign an affidavit indicting her neighbors. I mean, really, really railroaded them. Um, and the reason I have all I know as much in detail as I do is because it's the one court transcript that I have because there's a. Um, a collection of all the cases that are appealed to the Louisiana state Supreme court that exists separately from the new Orleans city archives. Wow. So I was just lucky. You wouldn't think that this, this many years removed over a hundred years, you know, <laughs> removed from, from these murders that it would be that difficult to get your hands on some of these, some of this documentation. And yet here we are. Well, I think um, stuff just is lost after time. And as I said, you know, I think, some of the more interesting court cases were probably stolen and are sitting in somebody's attic. Um, you know, what's the famous guy in the 1960s who the prosecutor accused of having something to do with the JFK assassination? Oh. Clay, what's his name? That one's missing because it's one of the famous cases and somebody just walked out with it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, and um, the New Orleans police... Historical archives, I just think at one point they gave whatever they had to the city archives and they closed out the case because a, a police officer in New Orleans told me, you know, as far as they're concerned, that case is solved. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's cleared. <laughs> um, but uh, 
but what was surprising to me is how much I was actually able to unearth, you know, the details in the various newspapers, the um, the court record that I found, the t- uh, court transcript that talent just didn't have access to and that I don't think anybody else really went looking for as hard as I did. That's so interesting. So yeah, I know we're running short on time here, but um, any any final thoughts on this on this case? Because this is, I mean, the work that you've done and the research is is just absolutely fascinating. Well, I like I said, I don't think it's against the laws of physics that one day you know we'll have a better suspect. You know, who knows if if people have read my book or read about the Axe Man and are going through archives in their own town and run across a similar case, I hope they will stop and think about whether or not they're connected because it's just not that common to attack people in the middle of the night with an ax. Um, so I'm hoping at some, I'm hoping that my book on the Axeman will not in fact be the last definitive work on the Axeman. I'm hoping that at some point in the future, it will need to be revised. And if I don't do it, I hope at least my book contributes to somebody doing it along the line. Absolutely. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking some time tonight to uh, to talk to me about it. And uh, well, I really appreciate fun. it. Uh, where can people go to stay up on top of your work and and go out and get a copy of the book? Well, uh, you can get a copy of the book from Amazon, or you can go to axemanofneworleans dot com to the website. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes uh, when this goes out. And uh, okay, again, thank you so much for for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. So were the Axeman murders committed by a lone man? Or were these murders carried out by more than one person? Was the mob involved? Or were they racially motivated? The further removed we become from the early 1900s, the more difficult it becomes to know for certain. But through the work of people like Miriam Davis, the truth feels closer than ever. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single new episode. Consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and make sure to tell a friend. I'll be back next week with an all-new mystery. And until then, thanks for listening to From the Void. From the Void.